Welcome, everyone. This is our first ever episode of Decoding Dating, where we will explore dating apps from a different light through their algorithms. While we are so excited to dive in, we first want to introduce ourselves to you so you know who you're listening to. We're all graduate students at the University of Pennsylvania, and we'll personally share a few facts about ourselves in an effort for you to get to know us better. Since I'm hosting this episode, I can start. My name's Sam Hall. I'm currently uh, getting my master's in social policy and was interested in sport and exploring more about dating apps in general. I'm a mom to two little boys who are two and four and love to run in my free time. I'm Sarah Nayuk and I'm getting my master's in data science. Having never been on dating apps and passionate about algorithms, I wanted to explore how dating apps really work. I love to cook, work out, and paint in my free time. And I'm Zach Walters, a single gay man who is anxiously awaiting the end of the grinder era. When I'm not complaining about the futility of gay dating apps, you can find me working to retain my status as the top Netflix binger. <laughs> and I'm Emmy Danforth. I've spent a lot of time on dating apps over the years, so I was really interested in this topic. Um, yeah, and I'm just excited to explore all the ways apps really shape our experiences with romance. Um, when I'm not dating, I like to get outside to bike or run or stay in and read. All right. Awesome. Well, that is the four of us. And now that you are a bit more familiar with us, let's dive in. So, Sam, to lay out the scene, let's start with the question that may be on a lot of our minds right now. What is the deal with dating apps and how they came about? Yes. Big question. Well, in a nutshell, dating apps are search tools. The apps use their own specific algorithms to match people up using personal data. The info they collect on each user can be anything from location, age, app activity, which is basically the way you respond to other users on the app, and specific preferences that you set when creating a profile. Interesting. So they're kind of like the Google of love. Exactly. So how did dating apps come to be? What is their history? Well, interestingly enough, the model of finding love through an algorithm started long before smartphones. In 1965, students at Harvard and Cornell developed Operation Match. Students would send in a questionnaire with a $3 fee, and their answers were transferred to punch cards, processed on a five-ton mainframe computer in Massachusetts, and then the students were sent a list of names and phone numbers of potential matches. Operation Match had over 90,000 users. That's so crazy. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> I know it is. Just getting on your little punch card love. <laughs> <laughs> and getting it mailed to you. <laughs> Once the web became public domain in 1993, online dating sites began to develop. Match.com was live two short years later in 1995. Social media was created in 2004, the smartphone in 2007, and between the two of them, dating through t technology just took off. Grindr was then launched in 2009, and it made a massive impact on the gay dating scene. And then... Tinder came in 2012. We will discuss Tinder more in a bit, but since the creation of this app, there is basically a dating app now for any and all of your dating desires. It is so interesting to learn about the evolution of dating apps and where we are today. So based on this history, has the dating scene changed because of this? Actually, Sarah, it's interesting you ask this because, yes, dating apps have made a major impact on the dating scene. Let's compare the years 1995 and 2017. 
1995, 67% of individuals met their match through mutual acquaintances, such as family, friends, or coworkers. That's two-thirds of all people met their partner from people that they knew. In 2017, only 38% of people met their partners this way. That's a 29% difference. Wow, no trust in those around you anymore. What happened? Well, to put it simply, online dating. 2% of people met their partners online in 1995. In 2017, 39%. 39% of people. Online dating has taken taken over the dating scene and is now the most popular way for lovers to find their match. Our podcast will focus mostly on dating apps in America, but these numbers are not isolated to our country. A fascinating transformation is happening in countries that have traditionally arranged marriages as well. For example, a a majority of Indians are moving away from arranged marriages by family and towards dating apps. That is true. (laughs) (laughs) And actually, the most popular in the country right now are Tinder and Hinge, which we will be talking about, as well as Bumble. It seems like the World Wide Web is certainly the new Cupid. Is there anything else to mention about dating apps before we dive into some specifics? Yeah, there actually is one more piece, user interaction. User interaction plays a large factor into the algorithm's predictions. Dating apps calculate matchups based on how users react and engage with potential matches. For example, if a user doesn't typically engage with people who have facial hair, the algorithm will adjust to decrease the frequency a user sees matches with facial hair. User interaction has grown more significant to dating apps as they have evolved, and we'll talk about this more later on in the podcast. Great. Well, now that we understand a little bit about dating apps in general, let's talk about some of the apps specifically. How about we start with the app that created the Ripple, Tinder? Tinder is based on a swipe model, which in its most basic sense means swipe right to like and swipe left to pass. The approach is straightforward and effective. Tinder is perfectly constructed to encourage rapid swiping and can psychologically condition its users through a reward system of getting a randomly dispersed match. In fact, it's the same reward system used in slot machines, video games, and even during animal experiments where researchers train pigeons to continuously peck at a light on a wall. To say Tinder is popular is an understatement. The app has 7.8 million active users each month in 2022 in the United States alone. The app currently boasts nine sexual orientations, and now three-quarters of the users identify as male. Yeah, and you mentioned the reward system, but tell us a little more about the algorithm for Tinder. How does that work? Right. Yes. So Tinder was really fun to research on the algorithms because the apps all started with a game of chess. It was based off of a software called the ELO rating system. And this program was originally designed to rank chess players. For Tinder, the algorithm logged likes and dislikes otherwise regarded as swipe lefts and swipe rights. It then gave each profile a quote-unquote ELO score based on how others swiped on you. In 2019, Tinder moved away from the ELO score system and now prioritizes active users. Tinder claims the best way to get matches is to use the app and to use it often. This actually ties into the user interaction piece mentioned before. It seems like this is a major priority for Tinder now. It definitely is. They want they want their users on the app, and switching their reward system to reward for high activity does that trick. Smart and tricky all at once. 
Which app is next? All right, let's talk about Hinge. Hinge advertises itself as the only dating app designed to be deleted. So in other words, Hinge wants its users to find relationships that last, not just quick flings. While there are similarities to other dating apps like accepting or rejecting profiles and seeing only one user at a time, Hinge does have a few standout features. The first one is prompt. This is basically personal questions about your life and interests. There are a ton to choose from and each user must fill out at least three prompts to sign up. The other aspect is standouts, where Hinge generates a list of users most your type based on your answers in your prompts. Another part of the app users really like is the fact that you can like various sections of a profile to show other users you're really paying attention to them. Basically, Hinge allows users to really dive into each other's profiles and interact more than just a quick dislike or like on a photo. Yeah, I can see how those features really help in finding a long-term partner. I think from my experience, there's something really nice about getting a like or a comment on something that's actually about you rather than just a swipe, a yes or a no from someone. I think it does, you know, help foster conversation too. Does Hinge's algorithm work differently than Tinder's? Thanks for asking that. Yes, it does. It functions on the Nobel Prize winning Gail Shapley algorithm. The algorithm matches people based on the concept of trading. To break this down, take a group of 10 heterosexual men and 10 heterosexual women. Have one group start by picking their first choice. And if they get rejected, have them move on to their second choice. And continue this process until none of the people left want to get matched anymore. Here you have people trading for their first choice and then their second and so on. Once again, though, user engagement and interaction play a massive factor in overall success. The more you use the app, the more data the algorithm can work with. So while the app connects you with potential partners differently, user interaction still plays a massive role in who you're matched with. I think I'm starting to see a pattern here. Let's chat about the LGBTQ apps. Sounds good. Let's start with one of the most well-known. Grindr. Grindr is a queer dating and hookup app. It was one of the first apps to use location as a means to match users. Rather than the culture of dating and swiping promoted by Tinder, Grindr is traditionally more suited to sexual encounters and hookups. When a, when a user opens the app, they'll see men listed in order of proximity. Turning off the location is definitely an option, but most users leave it on. It isn't unusual for someone to be logged on within 100 meters of you, and often there'll be even more users using the app within a few hundred meters of you. The app entirely destigmatizes the casual, casual hookup. Grindr has had a massive impact on the gay dating scene and how men loving men meet. There's just no way around it. Yeah, so, I mean, what you said there really struck home. I am a user of Grindr every now and then when I'm really bored. And I can confirm that, yes, sometimes you have users within one foot of you, especially <laughs> living in the city. I've had an instance where three people were within one foot of me, and I don't know if they were all in the same apartment above me or if... That was just the gay corner of the building, but <laughs> that is how Grinder goes. But overall, Grinder's kind of a cesspit. Can you talk more about that? 
Yes, I can definitely speak on that. This was a key piece of my research on Grindr. There's many general criticisms about the app. Arguably, it makes users unhappy, polarizing men rather than bringing them together. Body image was also a key point of contention because the app promotes a highly sexualized and therefore highly image conscious idea of attraction. And users can also be extremely racist. It's common to see no blacks or no Asians on profiles, for example. Between the body insecurity, the racial issues, and loneliness, Grindr has been linked by some to a downturn in the mental health of gay app users and the increased likelihood of depression. Yeah, I everything you said there is things I've heard repeated by people in my community. There are some perks to Grinder. There are opportunities and sex encounters that otherwise gay men wouldn't have, but the racism is so real. Yeah, it's really a shame and hopefully something will change as the app progresses. Well, the last bit on on Grindr is its algorithm. It was really difficult to find anything specific for this app. According to Grindr, algorithms are only used for security purposes. For instance, finding and deleting spam accounts. Still, some algorithms have to be in play because at the end of the day, it's still an app and it still uses a sorting function. While the first sorting method is definitely location, potential matches are certainly prioritized by each user's preference filters. Yeah, interesting. And you didn't mention it, but it still seems like user interaction is a big piece of the app. The more you're on, the more you'll find matches near you. Yeah, I completely agree with that. All right. Well, we have one more app to discuss, and I'm excited to chat about the next one. Based on all the apps I've researched and spoken about today, Field really has a new age progressive feel, almost like a cutting edge in the field currently. It's an app that advertises itself as a hookup app for the emotionally mature, an app that embodies inclusivity. In a setting sometimes described as non-normative, there are groups on this app that describe themselves as asexuals, kitchen table polyamorous, and ecosexuals. Explicit photos tend to be blurred until there is a match, and users are disincentivized to be rude to each other with blocking readily available. Sexual arrangements or fetishes are popular on field, and the desires and interests sections of a user's profile are the most important aspect of the app. They can include topics such as ethical non-monogamy, couples, and sexting. The interest section is more commonplace, such as the type of wine you like or what you like to do on the weekend. This definitely sounds more like a niche app, but I can understand why you feel like it is more progressive and inclusive for all kinds of love. Yes, it is certainly refreshing to learn about. And the algorithm seems to work off of what makes this app so special, the inclusivity of the user's desires and interests. It was difficult to find information around the algorithm from Field themselves, but one user that was tinkering with their profile to understand how algorithms worked said the apps used the desire and interest terms as pairing tags, and they are fundamental in matching users with like-minded individuals. Based on the user's testing, the more terms included in the desires and interest sections, the more results were obtained. That is awesome. So is there anything else you want to share about these apps now that we're wrapping up on episode one? Yeah, very quickly, I'd like to touch on privacy. Privacy is a topic that is really important, very serious, and a part of all dating apps. 
and really an important topic in any other big data conversation. Luckily, we're going to have an entire episode dedicated get dedicated to it by you, Sarah. But for this episode, I wanted to mention a few of the preliminary features I researched about some of the apps we learned about today. Tinder, for example, collects information on each user, such as date of birth, age, gender, and keeps a database of personal photos and videos. It also collects information about users from third-party sources. It does this when you log in or connect relevant social media accounts. This will also be discussed more in detail on our privacy episode, but there are many dating apps that still only allow you to log on or strongly prefer you to log on from one of your social media accounts. Apps like Tinder and Hinge also share your personal data with around 45 other match group companies and we'll get to Match Group in a minute. Grindr is continuously tracking location on its users due to the nature of the app. And in 2018, BuzzFeed News uncovered that the company had been sharing its users' HIV statuses and location data with two outside vendors. So just from this short bit, you can see that privacy is definitely an area for improvement in dating apps, and I really look forward to sharing more about this in our fourth episode. Wow. Even that just like surface level intro is really surprising to learn about. Um, And I'm curious, can you tell us more about Match Group? Yes, Match Group. I'm not sure if everyone will be surprised to learn about this company as I was, but basically they are a dating services conglomerate from the States that own 45 global dating companies. This includes two of the apps we spoke about today, Hinge and Tinder, as well as other popular apps such as OkCupid, Match.com, Plenty of Fish, and Ship. While there are no newspaper headlines with match group controversies to find, other than being sued for using fake love interest ads to encourage free users to pay for premium subscription services on Match.com, one company owning all that data just sounds like a recipe for disaster when it comes to privacy. Right. Well, I guess we will dive into all this more in our next episode. Absolutely. Emmy, as the host of episode two, would you like to give a little sneak peek on what's ahead? Yes. Well, we'll be talking um, a little bit more about the psychology of using the apps and how the algorithms magnify our biases. Very cool. Very much looking forward to that one as well. All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for joining us on our first episode of Decoding Dating. We will catch you in uh, episode two. Bye for now.